son and daughter of his son. At Jordan and Lenora Jordan. He come to give God praise to lift up his holy name. Because he said in his word, if he be lifted up, he will draw souls unto him. So here we are to lift up his holy name. That soul be saved. So, 
I'm here again today and all the glory goes to God for being able to share the word another Monday. So I'll be live next week, Monday again. And today I would like to continue where we had stopped last week and um, the discussion will be on the second Christ-related foundation of civilization in the gospel is the God-ordained family unit consisting of one man and one woman as the God-approved model to ensure civility and harmony on planet Earth. Now, brethren, all scriptures will be taken from the King James Version Bible, so if you have one next to you, you can always pull it out to refer to the text. But upon your own free time, you can also spend time in the Word reading the text that's being shared here today. So as I start, brethren, the new covenant of the gospel of the kingdom which Christ introduced, as we have read or seen in Luke chapter 16, verse 16, did not only offer life and immortality to humanity. No, not at all. In addition, it catered for the relaying of the second God-ordained foundational pillar of civilization, as I mentioned as the topic at hand today. And this is surely so. For when Jesus was asked in Mark chapter 10 verse 2, whether it was lawful for a man to divorce his wife, Jesus responded by asking them, What did Moses command you? Now, to Jesus' question, the Pharisees replied that Moses permitted them to write a bill of divorcement and put their married wives away. Jesus then answered and informed them that Moses permitted them to divorce their wives because of the hardness of their hearts. He then proceeded to inform them that from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Moreover, said Jesus, for this cause, which is the cause of maintaining the God-ordained pattern of the ideal family, shall a man forsake his father and his mother and shall cleave to his wife, and they two shall be one flesh, and no longer should they be treated as two separate entities, but rather as one united flesh. So one can read Mark chapter 10 verses 78 for confirmation. So concerning the statement that I made prior, the divinely given family model, brethren, Jesus, in an attempt to ensure its perpetuation, added the following amendment to the original matrimonial ordinance of Genesis chapter 2 verse 24, namely, what therefore God had joined together, let no man put asunder. And that's in Mark chapter 10 verse 9. Now, Jesus' disciples, in an attempt to make sure that they understood what Jesus meant by his above-stated matrimonial doctrine, asked him again the said question, which the Pharisees originally asked him, namely, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Brethren, please pay particular attention to Jesus' answer to the question that I just asked whether it was lawful for a man to divorce his wife. Remember
think, of course, that this was Jesus' second answer to the said question on that said day. Jesus' answer follows. Whosoever shall put away his wife and marry another committed adultery against her. And if a woman shall put away her husband and be married to another, she committed adultery. So that's taken from Mark chapter 10, verses 11 to 12. And time since, it could never get plainer than that. Can it? Never. Moreover, to confirm the fact that this was Jesus' final position on this crucial issue, we would do well to consider what the Holy Ghost inspired St. Luke to write on this said issue in his version of the Gospel. And the following quote refers, Whosoever put it away, meaning divorces, his wife, and married another, committed adultery, and whosoever married her that is put away, meaning, or divorced, from her husband committed adultery. That is found in Luke chapter 16, verse 18. Brethren, please observe the consistency in Jesus' teaching in Mark and St. Luke's gospel. And notice, if you will, that Jesus' teaching does not contain open bracket, open quotation, sorry, any exception clause, close quotation, in either Gospels. Now, if the Church of Jesus Christ followed what is being discussed today, right, and which we read from in Mark chapter 10 verses 11 to 12 and Luke chapter 16 verse 18, now if the Church of Jesus Christ follows those scriptures, those teaching of Jesus, recorded in the Gospel of St. Mark and St. Luke, our families would have been strong and our communities would have been stable and our current moral, morally bankrupt world would have been positively impacted by the difference. Of this statement, I am very sure. Instead of the statement that I just made, stability right what we see today is that those who call themselves christians are divorcing their wives and husbands even more than those who are not saved and what a pity what a spiritual and moral calamity so this state of affairs will surely trigger the just judgment of god even upon his own children so brethren, do our religious leaders understand what they are doing to the second Christ-related foundation of civilization when they sanction divorce and remarriage? I doubt very much that they do. And aren't they aware that when the foundational pillars of civilization are destroyed, God has promised that he would respond with snares, fires, and brimstone and horrible tempest so in case one is not aware or they are not aware i am now calling upon everyone who claims to be god's ministerial servant on planet earth to read psalm chapter 11 verses 3 to 6 
and observe what God's response will be. And should you believe that God would not carry through with such threats, consider the following. Now, in the days of Noah, when humanity was preoccupied with marrying wives, what was God's response? The following unambiguous declaration refers in Genesis chapter 6, verse 3, which states, The Lord said, My spirit shall not always strive with man, for that he also is flesh, yet his days shall be an hundred and twenty years. Brethren, it is interesting to note that God shortened the wicked man's lifespan from 900 plus years to a paltry 120 years. And when, because of their preoccupation with marrying wives, they then descended further into the mill of corruption and violence, God took the following decision, which I'll be reading from Genesis chapter 6, verse 7, which states, And the Lord said, I will destroy man, whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, and a creeping thing, and the fowls of the air, for it repenteth me that I have made them. So that was taken from Genesis chapter 6, verse 7. Now, when one considers the fact that in Noah's day, when only two of the twelve foundational pillars of civilization were destroyed, God responded to man's departure from the first two foundational pillars of civilization with a worldwide flood. Can you imagine what God's response will be to this evil generation that has destroyed God's 12 foundations of civilization? I shudder to even think about it. Moreover, Consider the days of Lot, when the people of Sodom and Gomorrah discarded the second God-ordained foundational pillar of civilization and gravitated instead to going after their own kind, that God responded by destroying them from the earth with fire and brimstone. Can't you see that this generation is heading in the said direction? I can assure you, brethren, that this generation that has already despised and discarded the second Christ-related foundational pillar of civilization and has brazenly espoused the evil lifestyle of Sodom and Gomorrah cannot and will not escape the just judgment of God, the creator, owner, upholder, supreme governor, and judge of this universe, including, of course, planet Earth. So they shall not and will not escape of this, I am absolutely sure. So brethren, Jesus retooled and relayed the second foundational pillar of civilization because he knew fully well that if it were not upheld, humanity would indulge in such heinous activities which would ultimately lead to its destruction. Now that the destruction of this second Christ-related foundation of civilization is gaining momentum worldwide, God's judgment is imminent. Now, the worldly wise believer would, no doubt, ask, did not Jesus allow for divorce and remarriage for Christians in St. Matthew's Gospel, as is being taught and practiced today? 
And the answer to that question is no, not at all. And if you want to ask if I am sure, and if I can prove it from the Bible, of course I can. And I am indeed delighted to prove same to you, my dear brethren. So please stay with me today. Now, the first thing that I wish to point out to you is the fact that Jesus' teaching on the issue of divorce and remarriage was spoken at the same venue and at the same time. The following explanation confirms my stated position. By examining the preamble to Jesus' discourse on divorce and remarriage, recorded in Mark chapter 10 verse 1 and Matthew chapter 19 verse 1, one can easily see that Jesus' lecture took place at the set time and at the same location. And the following speaks specifically to this issue that is being discussed today, or should I say, under review. Now, to prove my stated position is doctrinally sound, Let's look at some of the issues which were immediately dealt with by Jesus in the chapters preceding Mark chapter 10 and Matthew chapter 19. Accordingly, the first common issue recorded in Matthew chapter 18 verses 1 to 5 and Mark chapter 9 verses 33 to 37 deals with the issue of which disciple was the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus resolved that dispute by lifting up a little child and informing his disciples that if their ambition to be the greatest in the kingdom was to be realized, they had to be first converted and become as humble as a little child if they wished to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, since humility was the stairway to greatness in the kingdom of heaven. Neither was it coincidental that Jesus after having dealt with the issue of who was the greatest in the kingdom, dealt with the issue of offending one of the little ones who believed in him concerning that issue, he said that it would be better for that individual to have a millstone hung about his neck and that he be thrown into the depth of the sea as Matthew chapter 18 verse 6 states and Mark chapter 9 verse 42. Now following these two issues, Jesus again dealt with the said issue in Matthew and Mark's gospel of things which would prevent one from entering the kingdom and using different members of the body. He said, if one's eye, hand or foot was preventing one from entering the kingdom of heaven, it would be better to get rid of those members and enter the kingdom with one of each than to have both and be cast into hell's unquenchable fire for all eternity. So read Matthew chapter 18 verses 8 to 9 or Mark chapter 9 verses 43 to 48 for proof or confirmation. Now, after having dealt with these three similar issues in Matthew chapter 18 and Mark chapter 9, please notice that in both Matthew chapter 19 verse 1 and in Mark chapter 10 verse 1, that preamble Jesus' lecture on divorce and remarriage, it is specifically stated that after having dealt with those matters cataloged in Matthew chapter 18 and Mark chapter 9, Jesus' next recorded stop in Matthew chapter 19 verses 1 to 2 
and Mark chapter 10 verses 1 to 2 was at the said location. So the following excerpts confirm this fact, which I'll be reading from Matthew chapter 9 verse 1 and Matthew and verse 3, sorry. So Matthew chapter 19 verse 1 and verse 3. And it came to pass that when Jesus had finished these sayings, he departed from Galilee and came into the coast of Judea beyond Jordan. The Pharisees also came unto him, tempting him and saying unto him, is it lawful for a man to put away his wife for every cause? So that's Matthew chapter 19 verses 1 and 3. Similarly, from St. Mark's Gospel, we have a similar preamble. And the following refers. And he rose from thence, which is in Mark chapter 9 verse 30, to understand from thence, right? And cometh into the coast of Judea by the farther side of Jordan. And the people resort unto him again. And as he was wont, he taught them again. And the Pharisees came to him and asked him, Is it lawful for a man to put away his wife? Tempting him, as I just read in Mark chapter 10 verses 1 to 2. Now, only the intellectually blind will fail to see that Jesus' discourse on divorce and remarriage recorded in Matthew chapter 19 and Mark chapter 10 took place at the same venue and at the same time. Then the prudent student of the word might ask, if indeed Jesus' teaching on divorce and remarriage as recorded in Matthew chapter 19 and Mark chapter 10, took place at the same venue and at the same time. How is it that Matthew's version has an exception clause, while Mark and Luke's versions have none? Now the answer, brethren, is a simple one indeed, and is catalogued for your convenience. So let's pay attention to the following. With respect to the similarity of St. Mark and St. Luke's Gospels, it is to be understood that in the versions recorded in Mark chapter 10, verses 2 to 12, and Luke chapter 16, verse 18, Jesus directed his teaching to treat with the Western and non-Jewish matrimonial tradition, while the exception clause for fornication was catalogued in Matthew chapter 19, verse 9, or Matthew chapter 5, verse 32 was specifically written to address the unique engagement and matrimonial tradition of God's earthly bride, the Israelites, whose engagement and matrimonial traditions differed intrinsically from those which obtained in the West and among the other Gentile nations. Now, to prove my point, permit me to draw your attention to a similar lecture series where Jesus, having given one comprehensive discourse on the end time at the said location, deliberately enlisted the services of two Hebrew and one Gentile writer to document his teaching spoken at the same time and the same place. And the question is, one wonders why? And the answer is that certain issues which Jesus dealt with 
had real relevance to certain customs of the Jewish community, while there were other issues which, to a large extent, had no relevance whatsoever to the Gentile nations. Remembering that Jesus' end-time discourse in Matthew chapter 24 and Luke chapter 21 was given at one time and at the same location, please consider carefully the following differences in St. Matthew and in St. Luke's versions, which states, When he therefore shall see the abomination of desolation, spoken of by Daniel the prophet, stand in the holy place, that is, whoso readeth, let him understand, then let them which be in Judea flee into the mountains, let him which is on the housetop not come down to take anything out of his house, neither let him which is in the field return back to take his clothes. And woe unto them that are with child, and to them that give suck in those days. But pray ye that your flight be not in the winter, neither on the Sabbath day. For then shall be great tribulation, such as was not since the beginning of the world to this time. No, no ever shall be. So that's Matthew chapter 24 verses 15 to 21. Now what I want persons to do is to consider what the Holy Ghost inspired St. Luke to write on the said issue and the following excerpts refers. And when ye shall see Jerusalem compassed with armies, then know that the desolation thereof is nigh. Then let them which are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let them which are in the midst of it depart out, and let not them that are in the country enter there into. For these be the days of vengeance, that all things which are written may be fulfilled. But warn to them that are with child, and to them that give suck in those days. For there shall be great distress in the land, and wrath upon this people. So that's Luke chapter 21, verses 20 to 23. Now the prudent student of the world, of the world would, no doubt, notice that while Matthew's version has reference to the fact that the Jews may have to flee in winter from Antichrist assault, St. Luke's version has no such winter reference at all. Moreover, while Matthew's version warns the Jews that they should pray that their flight be not in the winter, neither on the Sabbath day, St. Luke's version has no winter nor Sabbath reference whatsoever. And the prudent asks, why is this so? Brethren, the reasons for the differences in St. Matthew and St. Luke's versions are accordingly detailed here under for your edification and eventual adoption. Firstly, while the Palestine is a region which experiences winter, the winter reference will have relevance to the Jews. If the Antichrist assault were to take place in the winter season, on the other hand, since St. Luke's Gospel has the entire world as its target group, and some parts of this world do not experience winter, in addition to the fact that the focal point of the Antichrist assault would be Jerusalem primarily. One can easily understand the reason for the omission of any winter reference in St. Luke's version. Again, 
since the Jews, having rejected Jesus and his plan of salvation by grace through faith, have clung to their Old Testament mode of religion, which includes Sabbath keeping as a major doctrinal issue. The Sabbath reference in St. Matthew's version would have real significance for them during the Antichrist despotic escapade in Jerusalem. Now, on the other hand, since Jesus has offered salvation to both the Gentile and the Jew through the covenant of the gospel of the kingdom, as we read in Luke chapter 16, verse 16. Moreover, since the doctrines of this new covenant do not include Sabbath keeping as one of its doctrines, the Holy Ghost did not inspire St. Luke to include any Sabbath reference at all, since that would have been irrelevant to the New Testament believer in Jesus Christ, who finds his rest in Jesus Christ. Moreover, brethren, my stated reasons hold true also for the differences in Jesus' versions of the parable of the fig tree, which is cataloged in Matthew chapter 24, verses 32 to 35, and Luke chapter 21, verses 29 to 33, respectively. For while in Matthew's version, which has the Jews as its target group, Jesus spoke the parable of the fig tree in Matthew chapter 24, verse 32. Consider what St. Luke, whose version targets all the nations of the world, has recorded in the following excerpt, as Jesus' parable spoken at the set time, the differences unfold. So in Luke chapter 21, verse 29 to 30, it states, Behold, the fig tree and all the trees, when they now shoot forth, ye see and know that summer is now near at hand. That's Luke chapter 21, verses 29 to 30. Now in contrast, St. Matthew's version has the following difference. So that's Matthew chapter 24, verse 32, which states, Now learn a parable of the fig tree. When its branch is yet tender and put it forth leaves, ye know that summer is nigh. So having settled the reasons for the differences contained in the stated parables, we are certainly better equipped to treat with the differences in Matthew, Mark, and Luke's versions on the issue of the relaying of the second God-ordained foundational pillar of civilization in the gospel of the kingdom of God. Now, with respect to the relaying of the second foundational pillar of civilization in the gospel, we can now understand why St. Mark and St. Luke's version of the God-ordained family do not allow for divorce and remarriage, since that would have defeated the very purpose for which God had ordained that second foundational pillar of civilization. And we can now appreciate why St. Matthew's version alone caters for divorce and remarriage only, only on the grounds of fornication. And fornication in Matthew chapter 5, verse 32, 
and chapter 19 verse 9 refers to unfaithfulness before the marriage was consummated. And because this is in fact so, Jesus in his wisdom used the word pornia, which in context meant pre-marital infidelity on the part of an engaged Jewish virgin, which in Jewish tradition was called a wife. So this he did in Matthew chapter 5 verse 32 and Matthew chapter 19 verse 9 and nowhere else. Now the question one would want to ask or might ask me is why? And the answer to that why is clear and is explained as I just mentioned, that the divorce and remarriage was only on the grounds of fornication, which was applicable to an engaged Jewish virgin, which is in the Jewish tradition, which they normally call them wife. Now, while the legal term of husband and wife in the Gentile world refers to a man and a woman who were duly married under the Jewish engagement and matrimonial tradition. However, a totally different scenario is obtained. Accordingly, under the Jewish engagement and matrimonial tradition, an engaged male and an engaged female were duly accorded the marital titles of husband and wife. So this fact can be verified by reading Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 to 25. But since the churches, in most cases, only read and treat with that passage during their Christmas festivities, they miss their vital piece of doctrinal information. And this is a pity. Now, concerning the episodes that I referenced in Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 to 25. It is interesting to note that while Joseph and Mary were only engaged, they were nevertheless called husband and wife respectively. In verses 19, 20, and 24 shall confirm my statement. So brethren, it is more than interesting in fact, is even surely amazing to observe that the angel from heaven recognized this unique Jewish engagement and matrimonial tradition referred to by Jesus in Matthew chapter 5 verse 32 and Matthew chapter 19 verse 9 and told Joseph not to be afraid to take Mary, his wife, since her pregnancy was of divine origin. Read Matthew chapter 1, verse 18 and 20 for yourselves. And this is even more amazing when one remembers that Joseph and Mary were only engaged according to Matthew chapter 1, verse 18, and yet Joseph was called her husband in Matthew chapter 1, verse 19. Now, what I would like your brethren to do is to think about that. Think about that, brethren, and if that were the only example where the uniqueness of the Jewish engagement and matrimonial tradition was highlighted, 
it would have been enough doctrinal foundation upon which to stand. But thanks be to God for being God and for giving us another concrete doctrinal confirmation of the stated Jewish tradition. So confirming, brethren, we have an ordinance which was written thousands of years before Joseph and Mary's day, which highlights the youth the uniqueness of the Jewish tradition of calling the engaged Jewish couple husband and wife, respectively, even before they were actually married. So the following verses highlight such, which I will be reading from Deuteronomy chapter 22, verses 23 to 24. And it states, If a damsel that is a virgin be betrothed, meaning engaged, unto an husband and a man find her in the city and lie with her then he shall bring them both out unto the gate of that city and he shall stone them with stones that they die the damsel because she cried not being in the city and the man because he had humbled his neighbor's wife so thou shalt put away evil from among you so that's deuteronomy chapter 22 verses 23 to 24. Now notice that God decreed that the virgin must be stoned because she cried not, being in the city. In other words, she agreed. While the man must be put to death since he had humbled his neighbor's wife. Now please remember that the female involved was but an engaged virgin. And yet she was called a wife. That's Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 24. Surely, it is also instructive to note that the hypothetical virgin in question was engaged to an husband and not to a fiancé. Now, this issue of calling an engaged virgin a wife is only applicable under the Jewish engagement and matrimonial tradition, not, I repeat, not in the West. With this understanding of this unique Jewish engagement and matrimonial tradition, therefore, one can readily understand why Jesus allowed for divorce and remarriage only on the grounds of fornication under the Jewish tradition. And since the Jewish matrimonial tradition differed from that of the West and Gentile nations in particular, the exception clause in Matthew chapter 5 verse 32 and Matthew chapter 19 verse 9 was allowed by Jesus for the Jews only for that reason. So under the original Jewish engagement and matrimonial tradition, the defiled engaged virgin who already was called a wife would have been stoned. So Jesus amended that old mosaic matrimonial tradition and instead allowed the engaged Jewish husband to put away his defiled engaged wife instead of allowing her to be stoned and marry another if he so chooses. It is for this reason and for this reason alone that Jesus allowed for divorce and remarriage under the Jewish 
engagement tradition. And since this relates to the Jewish engagement and matrimonial tradition only, the Holy Ghost inspired St. Matthew alone to write this, except it be for fornication clause in Matthew chapter 5 verse 32 and Matthew chapter 19 verse 9 and nowhere else in the Gospels. And whether you are mad with me today or not, do know that the truth has come your way today. So, as I mentioned today, Jesus not only relayed the second God-ordained foundational pillar of civilization in the Gospels, he also amended it for his Jewish brethren according to the flesh. For while there is no exception clause for married Gentiles in Mark chapter 10 verses 2 to 12 or Luke chapter 16 verse 18, a fact that is confirmed in Romans chapter 7 verses 2 to 3 and 1 Corinthians chapter 7 verses 10 to 11 and verse 39, we see that Jesus allowed for divorce and remarriage only under the Jewish engagement and matrimonial tradition and caused the same to be recorded in Matthew chapter 5 verse 32 and Matthew chapter 19 verse 9 respectively and in no other gospel. Now the prudent might ask, what is the rationale for this difference? I repeat, Jesus is saying the following, if the engaged virgin who under the Jewish tradition is duly called a wife defiles herself before the marriage is consummated, her fiancé who under the Jewish tradition is called an husband has his approval to put her away and to take another wife for she would have been stoned if after her marriage, she was found to have been defiled. Because of this unique Jewish tradition, Jesus used the words, except it be for fornication, which in context meant premarital infidelity. And since under the Jewish tradition, she was already called a man's wife, Anyone who took her after being put away would be duly considered to be an adulterer. Hence, Jesus used the words pornia and moikia for fornication and adultery, respectively, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 32 and Matthew chapter 19, verse 9. Now, because the devil could not handle this marital issue and the doctrine in the word, he instigated the creation of several biblical perversions, all starting with the word new, N-E-W, new. So this was done in, a, in an attempt to overthrow the clear teaching in the old King James Version Bible. So on this all-important issue of divorce and remarriage, and other vital doctrinal issues of the New Testament church. Now, if persons think 
that I am not telling the truth. Just examine almost all of the new version Bibles and observe for yourselves that they have replaced the phrase except it be for fornication by some word or phrase that would mean adultery or any other sexual act for that matter. And it is an open secret that with the acceptance of the teachings from the new versions, divorce and remarriage have skyrocketed worldwide in the churches of our Lord Jesus Christ. And this is a pity and a calamity. Wedding bells shall soon turn to divorce years. Be warned, Mr. and Mrs. Divorce and Remarriage Facilitator. Stop aiding the destruction of the church of Jesus Christ. God will deal with you sooner rather than later, without a doubt. The ditching of the old King James Version Bible is satanically instigated and facilitated by religious skullduggers who claim to be scholars. So the old King James Version Bible is discarded and the new versions are highlighted. And the sad thing about this is that it is becoming increasingly difficult to acquire the old King James Version Bible in which all the doctrines of the church can be easily proven, while the new versions which support the errant doctrines of the ever-growing cults are easily available. And this is a pity. And one might be tempted to ask, are there not larger assemblies today? And the answer is doubtless in the affirmative. Yes, but while we have larger assemblies, there has been a marked decline in power and purity in most of these ecclesiastical citadels of religious entertainment. And this surely is not a plus. Now, the divorce the term the scholar would doubtless ask the following question. Why haven't you dealt with St. Paul's teaching in 1 Corinthians chapter 7? And my answer to that question is this. I have purposely left those controversial verses for last. For after having dealt with the true doctrines of the church on this divorce and remarriage issue, I am now free to treat effectively with those seemingly contradictory portions articulated by the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. So please stay with me and let us deal with them. Now, any one of you who have studied St. Paul's writings of 1 Corinthians chapter 7 would have no doubt observed that 1 Corinthians chapter 7 contains some genuine doctrines of the church in addition to some of St. Paul's own suggestions, which were never meant to be the doctrines of the church, once this is understood, all doctrinal contradictions will disappear. So brethren, the first thing that I would like to draw to your attention is this. The apostle in his epistle to the Corinthians said, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 7 verse 1. So by that statement, the apostle was suggesting that male believers remain calibate, celibate, sorry. So male believers remain celibate. Now, my question to you is this. 
is that statement doctrinally correct? And the right answer is no, a straight no. For when God made man and woman and placed them in the Garden of Eden after having blessed them, his first commandment to the first couple was, Be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. That's Genesis chapter 1 verse 28. Now, if you have your Bibles in front of you, turn to Genesis chapter 9 and observe that after the flood of Noah's day, which occurred about 2,000 years after Adam and Eve were created, God's first command to those who were saved from that worldwide flood was, be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. That's Genesis chapter 9 verse 1. So brethren, According to Genesis chapter 1 verse 28 and chapter 9 verse 1, God's plan for man was that he be an active facilitator in populating the earth. Now, if we were to accept St. Paul's suggestion of 1 Corinthians chapter 7 verse 1, which was given long, long ago, and remain celibate, can't you see that God's plan for planet earth would be fulfilled by the unsaved? So, from that paragraph, therefore we know that 1 Corinthians chapter 7 verse 1 could not be a doctrine of the church and must be labeled as one of the apostles' personal suggestions given in response to issues in a letter which the Corinthian saints had written to him. Now, my stated doctrinal position find scriptural confirmation in the said letter, which the said apostle wrote to the Corinthians. The following verses speak confirming to this issue under review. So I'm going back to the said topic of male believers' celibacy, which the apostle first suggested in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1. He continued, But I speak this by permission, and not by commandment. So as can be seen in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 verse 1, was not a commandment for the church, but just a personal suggestion. And the following verses confirm my stated position. I would that all men were even as I myself, but every man had his proper gift of God, one after this manner and another after that. I say therefore to the unmarried and widows, it is good for them if they abide even as I, but if they cannot contain, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn. So that's 1 Corinthians chapter 7 verse 7 to 9. So by the apostles' own admission, the above cannot be construed as the true doctrines of the church, but his personal suggestions written in response to certain problems which existed in the Corinthian church of his day hundreds of years ago. Now, my stated doctrinal position finds scriptural confirmation in St. Paul's own writing, even in his pastoral epistles to bishops Timothy and Titus. Those doctrinal epistles were to be taught to faithful men who were to teach others also. And remembering that the apostle 
preambled one of his epistles to Bishop Timothy in the following words. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the commandment of God our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ, which is our hope, as I besought thee to abide still at Ephesus when I went into Macedonia, that thou mightest charge some that they teach no other doctrine. So I just read from 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 1 and 3. So with the clear statement of the God-ordained apostle in mind, please see what the apostle instructed Bishop Timothy to teach with respect to the conduct of the single females in the church. And the following genuine doctrine refers, I will therefore that the younger women marry, bear children, guide the house, give none occasion to the adversary to speak reproachfully. So that's 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 14. Moreover, to Bishop Titus, we have the following. Doctrinal confirmation of my stated doctrinal position, which refers to the aged woman likewise, that they be in behavior as becometh holiness, not false accusers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things, that they may teach the young women to be sober, to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, keepers at home, good obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God be not blasphemed. So that's Titus chapter 2, verses 3 to 5. So the doctrinal position is, without doubt, the true doctrinal position of the church on this issue, because, my, because the stated doctrinal position, any other articulated position that contradicts, what I just read in Titus chapter 2, verses 3 to 5, which was committed to bishops Timothy and Titus, must be classified as a suggestion and not as doctrine. With this position, all knowledgeable believers must agree. So with the doctrinal clarification at your disposal, we can now treat adequately with those controversial portions of 1 Corinthians chapter 7. So returning to the controversial verses, even to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 6 to 9, though I mentioned it prior, I wish to remind you that the Apostle Paul made it abundantly clear that what he wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 6 to 9 was not a commandment to be obeyed, but a personal suggestion. And the issue in question follows, I speak this by permission and not by commandment. So that's 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 6. So what portion of Paul's letter was not a commandment to be obeyed, but rather personal suggestion spoken by permission? And the verses in question follow. I would that all men were even as I myself, but every man had his proper gift of God, one after this manner and another after that. I say, therefore, to the unmarried and widows, it is good for them, them meaning male and female, if they abide even as I. But if they cannot contain, meaning their emotions, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 7 to 9. So, brethren, can't you see that the 
practice that I just read could not be part of the doctrines of the church since verse 8 of 1 Corinthians 7 contradicts St. Paul's doctrinal position articulated in 1 Timothy chapter 5 verses 14 to 15 and Titus chapter 2 verses 3 to 5. So on your own time, please check it out for yourselves. Now, with respect to verses 10 and 11 of 1 Corinthians chapter 7, the apostle reminds us that those two verses contain the true doctrine of the church, being the very teaching of Jesus Christ himself, as can be proven by reading Mark chapter 10 verses 2 to 12 or Luke chapter 16 verse 18. However, from the apostle's own admission in verse 12 of 1 Corinthians chapter 7, he made it abundantly clear that concerning the remainder of the issues for which the Corinthian saints sought his counsel, his corresponding response was not the commandment of the Lord, but emanated from he himself. And the following verses confirm my stated position. But to the rest, meaning of your concerns, speak I, not the Lord. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 7 verse 12. So with the knowledge that what followed was not a commandment, but fell into the category of a suggestion spoken by permission, as verses 6 to 9, as I, as I quoted, we see the apostle articulating the following. If the unbelieving departs, let him depart. A brother or sister is not in bondage in such cases, but God had called us to peace. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 15. Against the backdrop of the suggestion, we have the following clear doctrinal position of the church, which I'm reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10 to 11, which states, Unto the married I command, yet not I, but the Lord. Let not the wife depart from her husband. But, and if she departs, let her remain unmarried, or be reconciled to her husband, and let not the husband put away his wife. Now, if one were to treat 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 15 as the doctrine of the New Testament church, can't you see that such a position would almost be a contradiction of 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10 to 11, which we know to be the true doctrine of the church? For there is no window of reconciliation left in verse 15, as is the case in verses 10 to 11. For if when the unbelieving brother or sister departs, another person takes his or her place, and the departed one gets saved subsequently and wishes to return to his or her marital home, can't you see the problem which would result if 1 Corinthians chapter 7 verse 15 were implemented? And what about the children? This being the case, we must conclude that 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 15 is but a suggestion spoken by permission, but not a doctrine of the church of Jesus Christ to be obeyed. Never. So moreover, on this said issue of non-doctrinal suggestions, we have the following confirmation from the God-ordained apostles' own mouth which I'll be reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 25 to 26, which states, Now concerning virgins, I have no commandment of the Lord, yet I give my judgment 
as one that had obtained mercy of the Lord to be faithful. I suppose, therefore, that this, meaning advice, is good for the present distress, meaning time and situation. I say that it is good for a man so to be. So that's 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 25 to 26. Now, after having stated categorically that he had no commandment from the Lord concerning virgins, but was, nevertheless, advancing the following personal suggestions as one that had obtained mercy of the Lord to be faithful, the beloved apostle to the Gentiles gave the Corinthian church the following suggestive advice relative to the current problems which they were experiencing. And I'm reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 26 to 28. I say that it is good for a man so to be. Art thou bound matrimonially unto a wife? Seek not to be loosed, meaning divorced. Art thou loosed, meaning released, from a wife? Seek not a wife. But and if thou marry, thou hast not sinned. And if a virgin marry, she had not sinned. Nevertheless, such shall have trouble in the flesh. But I, not God, spare you. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 26 to 28. So brethren, I wish you would understand the basis for the suggestive advice of the Apostle Paul. The following verses should go a long way in providing the necessary explanation for the Apostle Paul's suggestions. So, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 29 to 31 states, But this I say, brethren, the time is short. It remains that both they that have wives be as though they had none, and they that weep as though they wept not, and they that rejoice as though they rejoice not, and they that buy as though they possess not, and they that use this world as not abusing it, for the fashion of this world passeth away. That's First Corinthians chapter 7, verses 29 to 31. So based on the tone of the message, it is obvious that the thinking of the church then was that Christ would have come in their lifetime. So this being the case, brethren, their focus was to be upon Christ's soon return to take them to be with him and nothing else. So deep-rooted and widespread was this belief that it caused believers to make no long-term plans for the future. In order to correct that misconceived notion, God revealed to and inspired the said Apostle Paul to write a second epistle to the Thessalonians. And this fact finds textual confirmation in the following excerpt. So I will be reading from 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 to 4. And it states, Now we beseech you, brethren, by meaning or as, by, or as regards, the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, and by our gathering together unto him, that ye be not shaken in mind, or be troubled, neither by spirit, nor by word, nor by letter as from us, as that the day of Christ is at hand. Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come except there come a falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition. 
who opposed and exalted himself above all that is called God, or that is worshipped, so that he as God sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. That's 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 to 4. Now, the scripture just read underscore the corrective doctrinal measure, which God had to initiate in order to correct the first century return of Christ belief which the corinthian church held in saint paul's day so from the understanding mentioned prior brethren you can readily understand why the apostle paul gave those suggestive advice to the church of corinth at that time now consider carefully the following remaining suggestive advice to the corinthian church and you would, no doubt, see for yourself that they could not be deemed the doctrines of the church, but only personal suggestions of the Apostle Paul. And the following verses refer, If any man think that he behaved himself uncommonly towards his virgin, if she pass the flower of her age, and need so require, let him do what he will. He sinneth not, let them marry. Nevertheless, he that standeth steadfast in his heart, having no necessity, but had power over his own will, and had so decreed in his heart that he would keep his virgin, doeth well. So then he that giveth her in marriage doeth well, but he that giveth her not in marriage doeth better. So that's 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 36 to 38. Now, consider what I just read carefully. And notice that the Apostle Paul is suggestively advocating that a Christian bachelor can befriend a Christian virgin and continue that friendship without getting married as long as he can control his emotions. So that's 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 37. Moreover, suggested the beloved Apostle Paul, if he cannot control himself, let him marry, he doeth well. However, said the Apostle Paul, if he does not marry, since he can control himself, he doeth better. So that's First Corinthians chapter 7, 37 to 38. Brethren, I ask you this sober question. Can the suggestions be the doctrines of the church? I know that you are wise enough to see that the advice given can never be the doctrines of the church. Never. For the following simple reason. For example, if a brother and a virgin sister is permitted to be friend each other and remain in that known relationship without getting married, what signal would that relationship send to the community in which they live? So your answer is as good as mine. Now that behavior would doubtless give the unsaved the liberty to believe that shacking up, as we would say in my country, is all right, right? And wouldn't it give occasion for the enemy to speak reproachfully of the church? Of course, it would. Now compare that advice with that of 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 14, and judge. 
because of the negative Christian witness which such a scenario would incite. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 36 to 38 could never have been. Neither can now be a doctrine of the church. Instead, it must be seen for what it was, nothing but a suggestion befitting the prevailing first century return of Christ belief which the Corinthian church held at that time. Now notice, if you will, that the Holy Ghost, having seen the possible negative fallout which the suggestions could and would have caused if adopted, immediately inspired the Apostle Paul to end his controversial discourse by restating the official doctrinal position of the church. Accordingly, I'll be reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 39, which states, The wife is bound by the law as long as her husband liveth, but if her husband be dead, she is at liberty to be married to whom she will only in the Lord. So that's 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 39. Notice again, brethren, that while verses 2 to 5, 10 to 11, 18 to 24, and 39 of 1 Corinthians chapter 7 are the true doctrines of the church, for the teachings contained in these verses can be biblically confirmed by reading the following verses. Mark chapter 10, verses 2 to 12. Luke chapter 16, verse 18. Romans chapter 7, verses 2 to 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 10 to 11 and verse 39. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 14 to 5. Or Titus chapter 2, verses 3 to 5. On the other hand, verses 1, 6 to 9, 12 to 16. 25 to 27, 36 to 38 of 1 Corinthians chapter 7 must be regarded as personal suggestions. For while they lack biblical confirmation, they also contradict the clear teaching of Jesus Christ and the very doctrines which the said Apostle Paul articulated in his pastoral epistles to bishops Timothy and Titus and even some of his doctrines in the said 1 Corinthians chapter 7 epistle. So, today's segment was a bit lengthy, but brethren, one can clearly see that by the gospel of the kingdom, referenced in Luke chapter 16 verse 16, Matthew chapter 11 verse 13, and John chapter 16 verses 12 to 13, God has relayed the second foundational pillar of civilization, which is the God-ordained family structure, consisting, as it should, of one man and one woman. I repeat, one can clearly see that by the gospel of the kingdom, referenced in Luke chapter 16, verse 16, Matthew chapter 11, verse 13, and John chapter 16, verses 12 to 13. God has relayed the second foundational pillar of civilization, which is the God-ordained family structure, consisting, as it should, of one man and one woman united in holy matrimony. 
to be permanently separated only by the death of either one of the marital partners. And the consistency of this true doctrine of the church can be confirmed by reading the following biblical text. Matthew chapter 19 verse 3 to 8 and verse 10. Mark chapter 10 verses 2 to 12. Luke chapter 16 verse 18. Romans chapter 7 verses 2 to 3. And 1 Corinthians chapter 7 verses 10 to 11 and verse 39 for that matter. Now history has taught us that those who subscribe to and abide within the doctrinal parameters of this second God-ordained Christ-related foundational pillar of civilization position themselves to be blessed of God. On the other hand, however, those who contest, despise, and disregard this God-ordained Christ-related second foundational pillar of civilization must also be prepared to face the just judgment of their creator owner upholder and supreme governor of this universe including of course planet earth so read psalm chapter 11 verses 3 to 6 which tells you so so brethren as i come to an end today it is fitting that I remind you that God's word is forever settled in heaven as Psalm chapter 119 verse 89 states. And even as Malachi chapter 3 verse 8 to 11 states, it is used Sunday after Sunday to the delight and benefits of many. Do be reminded that concerning the issue of the upholding of this second foundational pillar of civilization, even the relaying of the God-ordained family model, Malachi chapter 2, has the following lesson for us too. And I will read Malachi chapter 2, verses 12, 14, and 16. And it states, The Lord will cut off the man that doeth this, the master and the scholar, out of the tabernacles of Jacob, and him that offered an offering unto the Lord of hosts. Yet he say, Wherefore, meaning or why, because the Lord had been witness between thee and the wife of thy youth, against whom thou hast dealt treacherously, yet is she thy companion and the wife of thy covenant. And did not he make, meaning them, one? Yet had he the residue of the Spirit? And wherefore, or why did he make them, one, that he might seek a godly seed? Therefore take heed to your spirit, and let none deal treacherously against the wife of his youth. For the Lord, the God of Israel, said that he hated putting away, meaning divorce. Therefore take heed to your spirit, that he deal not treacherously. So that's Malachi chapter 2, verses 12. 14 to 16. So as we saw and we read from Malachi chapter 2 verses 12 to 16, we have understood and agreed that God is totally against this marriage, divorce, and remarriage scourge that is plaguing his church. And he will surely judge those who are aiding the destruction of what 
he is building in the earth. And even as this important discourse comes to an end today, I feel constrained to warn all those mighty men of God who have abandoned the old King James version of the Bible in which all the true doctrines of the church are clearly established and can be easily proven that hiding behind the NIV and the NASV, the Living Bible, the Good News for Modern Man or their sister versions will not save you. For God has already started to deal with those who are using biblical perversions to justify their heretical doctrinal positions on this divorce and remarriage issue. Therefore, reiteratively, I humbly beg you as a daughter to a father, cease from destroying this vital second Christ relay foundation of civilization. Even the God-ordained family model of Genesis chapter 2 verse 24, which was given to ensure peace and civility on planet Earth, and which Jesus re-established in the Gospels in Mark chapter 10 verses 2 to 12, Luke chapter 16 verse 18, and in the epistles in Romans chapter 7 verses 2 to 3, and 1 Corinthians chapter 7 verses 10 to 11 and verse 39. Read for yourselves these scriptures and also read Psalm chapter 11 verses 3 to 6, and Malachi chapter 2 verses 12 to 16 and save yourself while there is very little time left. So that's the end of my segment today. I will be live next Monday again. Remember to prepare yourselves for Jesus Christ's return because he will be returning. Spend time in the word on a daily basis. Jesus Christ loves you and I love you. Have a safe and productive week. Bless. All right, coming out from Tobago, son and daughter of the 